And let's welcome Kyle. Campus Outreach, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but this is one of the ministries that Hope Church supports. So that's our connection with Kyle. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Good morning, Hope. Um, appreciate the kind words. And um, yeah, I, I love being here. I, I really do consider it a privilege. Um, and humbly, when I come here preaching, it's, you know, it, it is a gift to be able to open up God's word with, with each of you. And thank you for your prayers and support of our ministry. Cora started kindergarten a couple of weeks ago. And my goodness, that is tough. That's tough. Even every, I mean, I don't know when the moment where you no longer, like when it doesn't feel special, but seeing her get out of the car with her backpack on, head into school, it just gets me every time. So I've just even been thinking, like, I really hope I don't ever, you know, take that for granted. And um, so, yeah, that's the biggest thing in our, in our family's life right now. But school starts tomorrow, so be praying for our ministry and for each of our staff around the state. Just be praying that uh, laborers be raised up on the campus. Um, but this morning, I'm really excited to be uh, in the Old Testament with you. So I'm wrapping up my MDiv this year. And so much of the, the last year of, of seminary is spending time in the Old Testament. So I'm going to pray that God would just be with us this morning, and then we'll open up God's word together. <clears throat> Father God, um, we, we come to you this morning, God, thanking you for Jesus, God, thanking you that you would send someone in on our behalf, God, that we could have life and a relationship with you. God, just pray for Hope Church this morning, for, for all of us here, God, for each man, woman, and child, God, that you would um, be with us, God, that you would soften our hearts to the gospel. God, that we, as we open up 2 Samuel, God, would um, God, cling more to Jesus um, this afternoon than when we gather this morning. God, we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the 20th century poet, Robert Service, penned some of his most famous words when he said, a promise made is a debt unpaid. And in the 21st century, many of us who have gone to college have experienced debt and have experienced the consequences of what it means to have student loans. And student loans, there is no escape. You, you pay them off. You sign the paperwork. You might not know what it means at 18 years old when you do it, but that debt is yours to pay. You made a commitment to the loan and you pay it off. And what Robert Service is saying here, similar to a loan, is that when you make a promise, you are taking on a debt. That a promise made is something you must follow through on. And I would imagine most of you, whether it's in your own life or with your spouse or your friends or your children, you think that keeping your word is an honorable trait. Many of you would say, I think keeping your word or keeping my word is one of the most important qualities a person can have. But what about when circumstances change? At what point, when you've made a promise to someone, is it okay to back out on it? I'm sure probably most of us, all of us would say there are times where we have had to go back on a promise we've made. New information has come to light. Enough time has passed. And you don't feel like if something were to happen where you would have to follow through on that promise, enough has changed where that promise is now void. 
I am not excluded from that. When I was growing up here in Northwest Indiana, I quickly became a Chicago White Sox fan. And that, that is the, the only successful team in my lifetime. I guess the Blackhawks count if you like hockey, but I'm not convinced that actually people watch hockey. There, there, might, there, there, there might be a few, but it's, there, there might be a few. But, you know, up here in Northwest Indiana, you understand there are two teams. There are two teams, so you have, you know, your Cubs fans, your White Sox fans, and I, I've seen success in my lifetime, and up until I graduated college, it had been over a century since the Cubs had tasted a World Series. But one of my best friends, who's actually our campus director at IEPY for our ministry, diehard Cubs fan, he's from Hobart, and when we were in college together, I made a bet with him. It wasn't really a bet, it was, it was a promise, it was one-sided. I said, if the Cubs make it to the World Series, they don't even have to win it. If they make it, I promise you that I will buy you World Series tickets. So, lo and behold, my third year on staff with Campus Outreach, I'm watching the NLCS. And the Cubs win. And they go to the World Series. And time had passed. It had been years. Circumstances had changed. I had gotten married. I now had a joint bank account. That, that money was no longer my own. And then I go to Ticketmaster, and I check how much Cubs World Series tickets are. If you can even win one, get one, you're paying close to five digits, $10,000, to get Cubs World Series tickets. Circumstances had changed. <laughs> and, and when my friend Jake came to collect on my promise, that debt was not paid. And it has been years since, and that debt still has not been paid. One of the most wonderful things in the world is when you have friends, a spouse, that follows through on their promises. Is there anything more valuable in a friendship than having someone you can count on or a spouse that you trust? And is there anything harder than when someone you do count on goes back on their word? When they've made a commitment to you, whether it's your parents or your spouse or your friend, they, they've made a promise to you and they back out on it. Is there anything more challenging in life than the people you trust the most backing out on a commitment to you? So this morning, I just want to ask a question. What does it look like to keep a promise when times have changed, when circumstances have changed, when new uh, new information comes to the light. What does it mean to keep a costly promise? And we're going to look at a story with David where he has, or he must keep a costly promise. So if you have a Bible on your phone or a Bible in front of you, go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. The words will be on the screen behind me. And most of us in here know a couple stories about David. We know about um, David defeating Goliath, and we know about other things with David, but 2 Samuel chapter 9 is sandwiched between arguably the two most significant moments in the life of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 is when God makes his covenant promise to David. God says there's going to be a temple built, but you're not going to be the one who builds the temple. It's going to be your son, but I'm going to establish a line through you that will never end. Jesus, God's covenant promise to David. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, just two chapters later, is when David commits adultery with Bathsheba. 
And sandwiched between those significant stories in the life of David is, is probably a story most of us are not familiar with. And it's David and Mephibosheth. So I'm going to, to read this short chapter, and we're going to see what it means to keep a costly promise. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's house named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's house hold were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. <clears throat> so David finally becomes king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, just prior to this, we see that David had conquered many other armies and lands. David was a great king. And now he's finally able to sit in peace on his throne. He's been running for his life from King Saul. He's been fighting armies, fighting battles. He gets to his throne and he can rest. But what is the first thing that David does. He has unfinished business with the former king of Israel that needs to be sorted out. And it's important to realize and to understand that in ancient Israel, common practice would be if there were any survivors, especially males, of the former king, they would be put to death. You would not want any of your enemies, especially ones who could claim the throne to be alive. Common practice would be to put anyone of the household of Saul to death. But there was an issue that David had to resolve, kind of, kind of a, a double-edged sword of conflict. So David brings in Ziba, who is the king, Saul's servant, and asks, is, is there anyone remaining? And there was. There, there was one son of Jonathan. So David had a best friend. When you read 1 Samuel chapter 18, you see the soul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The friendship of Jonathan and David was so significant that Jonathan was willing to betray his own father to tell David that Saul was after his life. 
So David is on the run from King Saul, Jonathan's father. And Jonathan goes to David before he leaves and says this. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made David swear by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. So David is on the run and Jonathan's last words to him were, you're going to live. Please do not cut off my family line when something happens to me. Let my children live. Let the household of Saul continue on. So David makes a promise and swears to his best friend that when the time comes, I will not put your household to death. But circumstances change. Times change. David, years later, think about the bitterness in his heart. If someone was after your life for years, would not betrayal be in your mind? Would not revenge be in your mind? You can finally sleep peacefully at night, but there's one person, Mephibosheth, standing in the way. You've made a promise to your best friend, and not just a promise to your best friend, but also to Saul. In 1 Samuel 24, David spares Saul's life. And afterwards, Saul, moved to compassion by David's compassion for him, says this. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of the Father's house. And David swore this to Saul. So David makes a promise to Jonathan that he will not cut off the line, and also makes a promise to Saul that he will spare any remaining children that may survive. And so now David has to tell Ziba, okay, bring in Mephibosheth to me. And so first, when we think about what does it mean to keep a costly promise? We are men and women who have lots of relationships in our lives, relationships with our spouse, our children, employers, friends. We likely make promises often or make commitments often. The first thing that David does to keep this promise is he remembers why he made it and who he made it to. So in order to keep a costly promise, we must remember the promise made. So when David first brings in Mephibosheth, who does he see? He doesn't see Mephibosheth. He thinks about his relationship with Jonathan. He thinks about the promise made to Saul. And David's love for Jonathan compels him to have grace. So, in your own life, think about the commitments you've made. Would you say that you're a man or a woman of your word? The promises you've made to your spouse, to your employer, to this church, do you keep your promises? And if not, because most of us do not perfectly keep our promises, in those moments, remember why you made them. I know in, in moments where I'm struggling the most with my relationship with the Lord, remembering when I first put my faith in Christ goes so far in my own life. Remembering what Jesus saved me from. Remembering what my life looked like prior to Christ. And then the affections are stirred up. The affections of when I first put my faith in Christ are brought to the surface. And I want to be a man of my word. But in the second scene, Mephibosheth enters, the grandson of Saul, 
And again, the grandson of Saul would mean by nature, Mephibosheth was an enemy to David. By nature, Mephibosheth was an enemy of the king. By being of the bloodline of the man who tried to kill the king, he was an enemy. But Mephibosheth was crippled. He, he was not able to walk at the age of four when we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 4, that when uh, Mephibosheth was a child, he was dropped by his nurse during the war on Saul and Jonathan. He was no longer able to walk, and he lived in Lodabar. You might think, what does Lodabar mean? Why is that significant? Debar is a Hebrew word for pasture. And at one point, Debar was full of pastures and land and crops, and you were able to raise livestock. But the Hebrew word for no is low, and after a war, Debar was completely wiped out of its ability to have agriculture. And now Lodabar simply meant no pasture or no thing. So the former king's grandson is living here in Lodabar, unable to walk. Why does that matter? He was in hiding. Why would someone who likely had tremendous wealth being the grandson of the former king be in a place where he could not farm based off, his, based off of his physical state, being the grandson of the king, you would likely have hundreds of servants. He knew that David, when he became king, would want to finish what most kings would have done and wipe out the family line. And for someone to not be able to walk, to have to travel days to get to Jerusalem, would be a tremendous journey. So being called before David from Mephibosheth is no small feat. There's no planes, there's no cars. He likely had to ride a horse with a group of people from David's army to get to where David is. This is not simply just a coffee or a time to catch up about Jonathan. Mephibosheth likely was fearing for his life by living in Lodabar knowing that when he came before David would likely be some of his last moments. I don't know if any of you have ever had a near-death experience before where, where you thought it could be your last moments on earth. But imagine you did know. And imagine you were standing before the king who your grandfather tried to kill. You knew that kings in that day would likely wipe out any remaining survivors of the family line. Imagine the fear that you would have being brought before David, unable to fight for yourself because of your physical status. And David looks at him to a man who's bowed down in front of him. And what does he say? Mephibosheth calls him by his name, showing respect and honor. He, he knows his name. And then he says, do not fear. Do not fear. And immediately, Mephibosheth takes a breath and thinks, my life is spared. Many of you know that Jen and I have a dog, Max, named after uh, the Grinch's dog, because that's Griffin's favorite movie. And Max is a bloodhound. And bloodhounds, as you know, love to smell things and go after scents that they are familiar with. And those scents are my children often. And Griffin, our three-year-old, uh, when he comes down the stairs, Max sprints over 
to the gate, and Max is still a puppy, but he's a good 80 pounds. He's a, he's a big dog. And Griffin loves Max. He adores Max. Max is the cutest dog. Long ears, super sweet. But the issue with my three-year-old Matt, or my three-year-old Griffin and my puppy Max is that when Max wants to smell Griffin, it means trampling Griffin. And Griffin doesn't like Max when that happens, as you can imagine. So when Griffin comes down the stairs, before he opens up the gate, he yells for me in terror. He yells for me in terror because he wants me to pick him up and carry him to somewhere safe, to the kitchen table, to the couch, somewhere like that. But sometimes Griffin doesn't know that I'm there. And he comes down the stairs screaming, and I run over, and I look at Griffin, and I say, Griffin, it's okay. Dad's here. Dad is here. And I got you. You're safe. And immediately, Griffin's face of terror just softens. And he smiles and he picks up his arms. And immediately, Griffin is in the safest place he could be in Dad's arms. Similarly, Mephibosheth, terror in his eyes. Here's the words of the most mighty human being on the planet at that time, the king of Israel. Never lost a battle. And from going from fear of his life to immediate Mephibosheth, do not fear. He's in the safest place he could be. David kept his promise here. David didn't just keep his promise, though. He goes above and beyond with Mephibosheth. He could have just spared his life and sent him back to Lodabar, but what does David do to keep his promise? He goes above and beyond. Saul, the former king, had likely tens of thousands of acres. Sources of food, treasures, homes, riches that we could not even imagine in the 21st century. And David says, it's all yours. Lodabar, poverty, no pasture. Nothing. A man who couldn't farm, who couldn't work, who couldn't defend himself, immediately is given with a snap of David's fingers. Tremendous wealth. This is a beautiful picture of God's covenant promise to us. That we deserve far less, but yet God provides above and beyond what we deserve. So how do we keep a costly promise? First, we remember why we made it and who we made it to. But second, we follow through on the promise, not the bare minimum, but above and beyond what's expected of us. So think about your marriages again. Your families, your children, your job, this church, the commitments you've made. Do you just do the bare minimum? Just say, no, I'm a man of my word. I'm a woman of my word. I, I do what I need to do. Or are you someone who goes above and beyond? Because you want to glorify the Lord. That was David's motivation here. He wanted to follow through to show the kindness of God. The words that are said here in, I think, verse 3. Do you go above and beyond in your life, with your spouse, in your children, in your church, in your job? Is that what you are known for? Are you marked by excellence because you want to glorify God? And if here, the, if the story ended, we would have, this would be a great, there'd be a great moral of the story. Keep your word. Go above and beyond. But David doesn't end here. 
David calls Ziba back into the room, and he says this to the one who oversaw the household of Saul. All that belonged to Saul and to all of his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So David didn't just give Mephibosheth land and a house and a farm. Because what would Mephibosheth do with that? He, he was unable to farm the land himself. He likely had I've been staying with a farmer for breakfast this morning. I'm learning all these things about farms. I had no idea that goes into them. And this was pre-combine era. A man who was unable to walk would not be able to, land, to farm his land. So what good would all that land be for him? So David goes above and beyond again and says, all that was Saul's, including the people who farm the land, will farm this for you. And you will have food to eat for as long as you live. But not just that, you'll have a seat at my table with me. What David does here is extraordinary. Someone who by nature was an enemy to David was given a seat at his own table like one of his own sons. And this is where we get a beautiful picture of the gospel. Mephibosheth, by nature, was an enemy to the king. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David when he came before him. He couldn't defend himself. He couldn't fight on behalf of David. He had no money or treasure to give him. He, he couldn't earn David's love. And in the same way, you and I are by nature children to the king. We're enemies of God. We, we have nothing to offer him. Our good deeds are not enough. You can't fight many mighty battles for God. Your good deeds are never enough to earn his love, just like they weren't from Mephibosheth. But what does God do? When Mephibosheth enters the room and David looks at him, he doesn't see the enemy. He sees Jonathan. And he loves Jonathan. And because he loves Jonathan, he loves Mephibosheth. And for those who are in Christ, when we come before God, when God looks at you as a believer in Jesus Christ, he does not see you. He sees his son, whom he loves. And because of what Jesus has done, he loves you. And if it were the other way around, and it was based off of what we did, and it was based off of how often we kept our word, and it was based off of how many good things we did, it would never be enough. You would always fall short. That is why Jesus had to come. He had to come to live a perfectly righteous life, to uphold every promise, every commitment, to glorify God in all things that he did, so that when he died, for those who would trust in Jesus, you would come before the king, and he would not see you. You would be hidden with Christ. You've heard that phrase. That's what that means. To be hidden with Christ means when you come before God, he does not see you. He sees his son. And God loves his son. And David gives Mephibosheth a seat at the table, like one of his own sons. And God does the same thing for all of those who are in Christ. He gives you a seat at the table. You are adopted as a son or daughter of the king if you are in Christ. 
So a costly promise isn't just remembered. It's not just kept, but it's sealed for life, for eternity. That's what David tells Ziba. Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. For the rest of his life, he will be welcome here as one of my own sons. And that sealed promise changed Mephibosheth's life. We see an allusion to this in Galatians chapter 4 when Paul talks about this idea of adoption in Christ. He says this, And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So in Christ, you are a son. You are a daughter. But the question is this. That promise that David gave Mephibosheth changed Mephibosheth's life forever. A seat with the king. If you claim to be a Christian or if you are a Christian, how is that promise changing you? How has the promise of being a son or daughter of the king changed the way you live your life? How has it changed the way you keep your promises? How has it changed the way you view your marriage? You view your job? You view your relationship with the church? Because your life should look different as a result of what Christ has done for you. Is your life different from your neighbor? Is the way that you live your life, the way you give, the way you serve, the way you talk, different because of the promise? Because friends, hope, church I love, our call as Christians is to look different from those around us. Not just to be different, but to be different because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Because you have a seat at the table. Our purpose is to glorify God in all that we do. In all of our words, in all of our actions, in all of our service. So, that ultimate cost. Have you trusted in it? Have you put your faith in Christ? And if you have, how is it changing you today? That is the question that I want you to think about as you leave the room today. Mephibosheth's life was forever changed because of the promise. Has your life been forever changed because of what Christ has done for you? Let's pray. Father God, um, Lord, I just come to you this morning, God, knowing that I do not have every answer to every question, God, that my life is far from perfect. But God, I thank you, God, for the one who did live a perfect life. God, I just pray for myself and for every man, woman, and child in here, God, that we would be men and women who cling to that promise, God, that Christ has lived the perfect life. God, just pray that that promise would change the way that we live, God, change the way that we talk, the way that we interact with others. God, I pray that you'd be glorified in all things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.